one of the issues with sports drinks in particular, like getting enough sodium in, is that a lot of sports drinks like your Gatorade and Powerade don't really have a lot of sodium in them. Mm-hmm. And the average person sweats about a thousand milligrams of sodium per liter. Okay. But most sports drinks only have about 300 milligrams per liter. Mm-hmm. And so if you're sweating a thousand milligrams per liter. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Yeah, it's all uh, good. And then we'll, we'll get going into things. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today, you may have seen before back on episode three. He's a very familiar face. Um, I won't go through all of his credentials again, but... You know he is a well-qualified triathlete. He has a national championship and a world championship title under his belt. Hopefully more coming in the future. Um, He has his PhD in exercise science, and he is the lead exercise physiologist at the Sports Performance Lab at Mary Freebed Sports Rehabilitation. The most important thing to know about my guest today is that he loves cinnamon rolls, and he always has well-clothed hair. Welcome to the show, Todd Buckingham. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Jesse. (laughs) Well, you, t- you said you were going to get your hair cut, so I had to include that to make yes, sure <laughs> for, for anybody uh, watching on YouTube, not just listening to the audio version, you can see Todd's well-done hair. Yes, sponsored by Everyman Jack, the hair. <laughs> <laughs> Still racing with TMJ. So I saw, um, um, so everybody knows, Todd and I actually are friends. He's not just a random guest. Uh, he is courteous enough to come on and well-qualified. Um, but I saw on Facebook, yeah, you had gone to Kona. I thought you were racing Kona initially, but it seemed like you did not. What What were you actually doing in Kona with the uh, EMJ team? Yeah, not a chance of my race in Kona. <laughs> and, uh, I, I've done a few 70.3s and four hours. It's long enough for me. Uh, I can't imagine being out there for nine or ten. Um, but yeah, I went out. I went out with the Everyman Jack triathlon team just as kind of like support crew, cheering crew. But I also was out there for work. And so part of my job as the lead exercise physiologist of the performance lab is to do performance testing on athletes. And that includes things like VO2 max testing, lactate threshold testing, body composition. Uh, But we also have a really unique service where we test athletes' sweat composition. So we test how salty their sweat is. And Mm -hmm. um, that's largely genetically predetermined. And so um, I I went out there and I tested... uh, about a dozen of the guys on the team. Mm-hmm. And then after we do the testing, we can then personalize a hydration plan for them based on how salty their sweat is. So the testing is really cool. Um, it's through a company called Precision Hydration and it's a non-exercise test. So, you know, they don't have to work out for an hour in the Kona sun uh, to get a sweat composition, but all they have mm-hmm. to do is um, sit down in a chair. We, we place two electrodes on the forearm that stimulate the sweat glands. And then we place a sweat collector over top of those uh, where the electrodes were. After about five minutes, we t- take the electrodes off and uh, put the sweat collector on. It scoops up the sweat. We inject the sweat into the, uh, the analyzer, and it gives us a, a, an equivalent reading of sodium per, um, per liter. So based on that, then we can prescribe how much sodium they should take in during a race. And so along with the the actual measurement of sodium concentration, we also go through about a dozen questions with them, asking them, you know, what sport are you doing? Because they have a range from whether it's triathlon or running Mm -hmm. to team sports like football or soccer. Um, You know, we ask how much they train a week, where they train, like what kinds of environments. And that just helps personalize the, the hydration plan for them and so they'll get a hydration plan for before during and after a race and also training so one of the issues with sports drinks in particular like getting enough sodium in is that a lot of sports drinks like your gatorade and powerade don't really have a lot of sodium in them mm-hmm. and the average person sweats about a thousand milligrams of sodium per liter okay. but most sports drinks only have about 300 milligrams per liter. Mm-hmm. And so if you're sweating a thousand milligrams per liter, but only taking in 300, you're losing out on 700 milligrams 
per liter. Mm-hmm. And no, that's not an issue with sports that might only last an hour or two. But when you're doing an Ironman that lasts nine to 10 hours, and let's say you're sweating just one liter per hour, you're going to sweat 10 liters. If you're missing out on 700 milligrams, you're missing out then over the course of the race, you're missing out on 7,000 milligrams of sodium. And so, I mean, that can lead to a host of of issues uh, on its own. But, um, you know, the, the key is maintaining those sodium levels as close as you can because just like nutrition you're never going to be able to take in as much as you're losing because Mm -hmm. just like with calories you're burning tens of thousands of calories during an Ironman you're never going to be able to take that in but the goal is to mitigate the losses and so that's really what we're trying to do is um, mitigate those losses and precision hydration actually makes some really strong um, concentrated sodium products so they have a, a product that's up to 1500 milligrams of sodium per liter. Okay. And so, you know, it's it's much better at replenishing the athlete in terms of sodium losses compared to say a Gatorade that even the endurance formula only has 600 milligrams. A normal Gatorade just has about three. Do you know, um, is there like a maximum uptake in terms of, you know, like I'll say it's like sodium uptake per hour that, that a body can handle? Mm-hmm. Like I just did, um, a video for my other segment runner's high on um like how to calculate your sweat rate and for people to go through that but it's all like like i sweat a lot per hour like i, I figured out my sweat rates roughly um like 49 50 fluid ounces an hour so i sweat a lot yeah so and, almost two liters yeah right um it's like I, I can't drink that much you know like right. there's, there's a limit on how much you know liquid i can replace so is it similar with the sodium or can we just like eat salt and then <laughs> you know hit hit whatever we're losing yeah that's a good question i don't know the answer uh as far as like is there a maximum uptake kind of like we know like carbohydrates is about 90 grams mm-hmm. per hour that's about the maximum but even that is kind of like well if you really train your gut you can you can take in even more right so um I mean, 1,500 milligrams per liter seems like quite a bit. And, um, you know, I I don't think many people have an issue with taking that much. But it's just like with anything, you know, you have to train your body to kind of handle it. Um, Right. So, you know, I wouldn't recommend somebody go out and do this like during me. And I didn't with, with the guys, you know, that I tested. I told them, you know, here's how much you need use whatever product you're using, but maybe up the dosage. And in the days leading up to the race, maybe try the precision hydration, the really strong concentrated stuff, just because you're losing so much sweat in Kona, just walking around because it's so hot and humid. Mm-hmm. And and taking in that extra sodium is just going to help keep you um, more hydrated. It's going to help your body retain more water. Mm-hmm. I think you kind of touched on this. And I, I've spoken to, um, I, like I was talking about earlier, um, Christy with her book, good to go. And then, um, a couple of different registered dietitians talking about like sodium intake for, I'll say the average athlete who's not going for very long. You, you know, you mentioned like one to two hours, it may not matter. Right. Um, it, so it is like this kind of product only really relevant for say us that are going to go do two plus hour events. It, you know, say if I, if we're just going to go do pick up basketball for an hour, does it matter whether we have a sports drink or not? Yeah, probably not. Um, and I mean, for, for an hour, it's just like with calories. You don't need calories if you're just exercising for an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for like a, a basketball game, I know Precision Hydration, the, the company who makes the sweat testing kit, they work with a lot of professional soccer teams, professional basketball teams, um, and even some professional baseball teams. So... It, it really is for any athlete because every athlete sweats, right? Right. But it's going to be probably more important for the athlete who is losing, you know, like you close to two liters per hour and, mm-hmm. um, and we're out there for four to 10 hours or whatever it is. Right. So right. It's, it's just going to be the level of importance, I guess. See, I kind of wonder, like, if you have any recommendations for me, because I've been thinking about this, where it's like, I know, especially especially hot races, that I just wilt. Even in two-hour situations, sometimes my run ends up getting really neutered, because I just, 
I just can't move anymore. I think it's because of the lack of water or how much water I'm losing. And that 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 49 fluid ounces was like in the pool in a in a you know 79 80 degree pool. And that's yeah. So not not terribly hot. I mean it's it's a yeah, little it's warmer warm. than competition temperature. Yeah. Um but it's not like uh, a good example was my my triathlon in Joplin where I'm trying to remember how warm it was, but high 80s, low 90s, and very humid. And it was just, I was pretty much wasted by the end of it. And my, you know, my 10K was something like in the 40s when I should be in like 35s. Mm. So I'm like, can I, is there anything I can do to mitigate that since I can only uptake so much water and I seem to lose it so easily? I think the biggest thing for you would be to make sure that you're starting the race really well hydrated. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the recommendations that we make in the lab is that because just like with calories and carbohydrates, you can carb load. Well, you right. can do the same thing with electrolytes. You can preload with electrolytes, take in, you know, the 1500 milligrams per liter the night before and the morning of the race. Mm-hmm. It'll just help your body hold on to more water. Okay. And and it makes your blood volume increase. And so what happens when your blood volume increases? So and actually it's the plasma volume. So we know our blood is split up into red blood cells and blood plasma and a okay. little bit of other stuff. But right. most of the blood is is that. And so when your body holds on to more water from the elect- electrolyte loading, holding more sodium, mm-hmm. uh, your, your plasma volume goes up. So that makes your blood more watery. And when this happens, it makes the heart not have to work as hard. So because the blood is thinner, it can be pumped out through the body more easily. Another thing that happens because you have more total blood volume. So imagine your heart with a normal beat, your heart is expanding a little bit and contracting, expanding a little bit, contracting. Mm -hmm. But when you have more total blood volume, your heart has to expand more. And the the greater expansion leads to a more forceful contraction and more blood is actually pumped out of your heart with each beat. Okay. So think think of it like a rubber band. So I actually have a rubber band right here. So with normal amount of blood, if you didn't preload with electrolytes, your heart expands and contracts back. Not very, you know, I mean, it's it snaps back pretty quickly, but not to the extent if you preload with electrolytes and then it snaps, it's going to snap much more forcefully and it's going to pump more blood out with each beat. So it just becomes more efficient. So really loading yourself up and making sure that you start the race hydrated, it might not prevent it from happening to you, right? but it will it will prolong it from happening. See, and that's why it's always good to ask because I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking about, okay, what can I do in terms of like body cool, you know, because you're trying to, your body's trying to cool itself down with all this sweat. And I'm like, what kind of, I mean, I do heat training, try to acclimate to the heat and that reduces it some, but I'm like, gosh, can I carry like an extra water bottle that's just full of ice and use that as like a sweat alternative? Like not, not even like doing the, the almost common sense thing of like, make sure you're hydrated when you start the race. Not that I'm dehydrated, but you know, like right. doing those extra like simple prep things. That's like, uh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> you know, once you actually get it out. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, th- those are the things that I kind of help with in the lab is like, yeah, you might know this intuitively, but um, really being able to have a, a set schedule and say, okay, well, you know, on three days before the race start doing this and then kind of leading up to the race um and then even in in training and and um different workouts you know we we give the that personalized hydration plan so that you can perform your workouts optimally so that you're getting the most benefit out of that Mm -hmm. Uh, and again like yeah if you're doing an hour workout you probably it doesn't really matter um just like with your calories. But I mean, if you're going on a five hour weekend ride, you know, yeah, it's going to be important. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me about the lab. Cause last time we talked, I, you'd either just started or we're getting ready to start. Where did the lab come from? Did they build it just for you? Like what's, what's going on? Um, and, and why are you in charge? 
Well, that's a good question, man. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, it it kind of did get built for me, which is kind of flattering. Mm. Um, you know, I feel like the prettiest girl at the ball. Um, <laughs> but it, it was really interesting because it was last July that I met my now boss at a triathlon. And I had just graduated from Michigan State with my Ph.D., and I had been the exercise physiology lab coordinator at Michigan State. And he was looking to kind of build something like that, but didn't really know how or what equipment to get. And so, you know, we talked and, and he, um, you know, he hired me on. And so I essentially built the lab from the ground up. I ordered all of the equipment. I, I picked what equipment to order and, and what kind of testing we were going to be offering. Mm -hmm. And so it's really cool because... Like, this is honestly a dream for me, and I think for a lot of athletes in the area, because nothing really like this lab exists anywhere in Michigan or even in the Midwest region. Mm -hmm. So we have um, a Woodway treadmill that goes up to 15 miles an hour and 23% incline, and it also goes down to negative 3%. So we can do VO2 max testing, lactate threshold testing, metabolic efficiency testing on that. Uh, we have the Cortex metalizer which it, uh, it's like the face, the Bane face mask that you put on and mm -hmm. um, we collect all the oxygen inspired and carbon dioxide expired so that we can really see, um, you know, your VO2 max, get how many um, and what type of calories you're burning from either carbs or fat. Um, we also have a, a DEXA scanner. So the DEXA is dual energy X-ray absorbed geometry. It's a really fancy way of saying this thing takes an x-ray of your body and gives you uh, body composition. So it gives you very accurate body fat percentage, muscle mass, and bone mineral density. And it's accurate within about 2%. And so a lot of the measurement devices out there like skin folds or um, the bioelectrical impedance where you know you step on the scale and it's mm -hmm. got the foot pads, mm -hmm. those can be anywhere from like five to 10% inaccurate. So if it right. reads, if it reads you're 20% fat, well, that means you could be anywhere from 10 to 30. Right. But with the DEXA, the DEXA is maximum of 2%. So if it reads 20, well, you're 18 to 22. Mm -hmm. And so it's just much more accurate. Um, it's really simple. You lie down on the table and essentially this arm scans over your body, taking an x-ray of your body. Mm -hmm. And it takes about five to 10 minutes and that's it. Like, do you have to you flip have over to... or you just, nope. okay. Nope. Um, and it's not like, you know, the bod pod where you have to strip down essentially into spandex and wear a little swim cap and go into the pod. Um, it's not like underwater weighing where you have to get in your swimsuit and then breathe out all your air and then dunk yourself underwater. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's really painless. Um, it's the most accurate method to assess body composition. Uh, I should say the most feasible because the most accurate is autopsy. And I don't think anybody wants to go through that. We're <laughs> <laughs> really dedicated to doing with that. Yeah, body super dedicated. Um, so yeah, so the Texas is really one of our big ones. Um, like I mentioned the sweat testing, we do that. We also have, um, a kicker in the lab with, the climb and the headwind so that we can do bike VO2 max testing, bike lactate threshold testing, and bike metabolic efficiency testing um, if somebody wants to bring their own bike in. We've also got uh, a Velotron, which is a stationary cycle. It's, a, it's an electronically braked cycle, and uh, it's produced by Cork. Cork makes it, and it's, it's basically a, a clinical research-grade um, cycle ergometer, which essentially we can do the same thing that we could on somebody's own personal, mm -hmm. uh, like the VO2 max, lactate threshold, and metabolic efficiency. So um, lots of really cool stuff that, that I get to do on a daily basis, and I get to work with lots of different athletes, um, you know, runners, triathletes, cyclists, basketball players, football players, like you name it, and, and really anybody, um, any athlete can, can benefit from you know, what we offer. So are people just like coming in off the street and like saying, Todd, help me be, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, or like, is it, I mean, what's the purpose of the lab, I guess, or, or is it like more research? So the purpose of the lab is to improve athletes' performance. Uh, okay. We haven't started doing any research yet. 
that's something that we want to get into. But right now it's just about building the lab and increasing, um, you know, the numbers and, and really just partnering with local teams, local high schools, colleges, um, you know, professional teams like, um, you know, the Grand Rapids Drive, the basketball team, the minor league basketball team for the Pistons or the West mm -hmm. Michigan Whitecaps. Um, you know, we're working on setting things up with them so that, like, because like I said, nothing like our lab exists anywhere in Michigan or even the Midwest. And another right. thing that makes our lab really unique is that not only do we have all these performance testing, but I'm housed within the sports rehabilitation department. So we also have physical therapists who are here and we have like a lot of rehab equipment. We've got an alter G treadmill where you can put somebody on the treadmill who maybe got injured and is just getting back into running, but can't do full weight bearing. Mm -hmm. So the alter G is essentially unweighting their body to, you know, if you weighed a hundred pounds, it could unweight your body to, so that you only weighed 20 pounds. So, um, it's really cool, uh, as a use for, you know, rehab or even just runners who want to increase their mileage without putting all of that extra strain on the body. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got the performance lab, we've got physical therapy, and we also employ a sports psychologist. And so he does mental training skills with athletes. So we've got all of this kind of under one roof and it's a really well integrated machine where it's like, you know, go do this one, this one, and this one, and all of their needs are met under one roof. And so not only is the lab state of the art and not found anywhere else, but so is like all of the services that we offer. Mm -hmm. So how often are you testing yourself with the, <laughs> all the, like, the toys you have to try to improve your own times? Well, no, I'm not testing myself. I'm just checking the equipment to You're make sure. You're calibrating the equipment. Exactly. Right? I'm calibrating the equipment. Um, honestly, like I don't, I don't test myself that much. I haven't got on to do a VO2 max test yet, but I want to do that. Um, I've done the DEXA a couple of times, but not much. Um, the sweat composition test I've done, but with that, you only need to do it once because your sweat composition doesn't really change much throughout your career as a as an athlete um it's always going to be like it might change fluctuate a 100 200 milligrams per liter but not appreciably enough to really change like the hydration plan that we would prescribe you right. so um i've done that one but yeah anything with the vo2 max test or anything i haven't done that i did a arresting metabolic rate test on myself just to make sure that the you know the equipment worked okay before i got somebody in yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and that's part of the reason that I wanted to start this lab is because I know as a, an athlete, I would want these services. And mm -hmm. so to be able to offer it to other athletes who are looking for this, I mean, it's a scientifically proven way to improve your performance as opposed to just guessing. And that's the biggest thing is that a lot of us are like, okay, well, maybe I should take in about. 150 milligrams of sodium per liter or whatever it is like maybe i should run my easy runs at this pace well now we can scientifically say okay your sweat sodium concentration is 900 milligrams per liter so you need to take in this much this often uh, or like your heart rate running at seven minute per mile is 140 so that's going to be your limit on you know, your aerobic runs, for example. So um, it's really cool because it's it's a scientifically proven way to improve performance. Do you find that a lot of the things, you know, because I know we both have kind of a feeling or experience um, in terms of like, okay, I know my long run pace is this and my heart rate is roughly going to be here. Do you find a lot of those things get corroborated or have you had any kind of like surprises in the few tests that you've done with yourself? I think the biggest thing, and, and not tests that I've done on myself, but tests that I've done on clients in the lab, is that a lot of people do their easy runs too hard. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that, you know, Matt Fitzgerald I have a whole video about talked about this, so I won't get too much into it. But the problem if you do your easy runs too hard is that you can't do your hard runs hard enough. And the goal of an easy run is not to improve fitness, but it's to help 
recover from a hard run and to prepare you for the next hard run. You know, improving blood flow to the, the exercised muscles. It's not to gain fitness. And so, you know, Elliot Kipchoge can run 434 per mile for a marathon, but he does like his warm up at eight minute pace. Mm. Like the rest of us should probably be running a little bit slower. A little bit slower. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, you know, I always noticed that too, just this is anecdotal, obviously, but in college you go to, you know, track meet and often indoors when you would see people more often because you're all cooped up in this little area, but you'd see the guys you knew, okay, these are the three, five guys that are going to be out front for this 5K or two mile or, or whatever the event was, and they would be essentially doing the football shuffle to warm up. And you're like, what is happening right now? Mm-hmm. But it, like – Without almost without exception, the fastest guys would end up almost going the slowest on their warmups compared to the rest of us. You have to run slow to run fast. That's that's one of the lines that I like to use in the lab, and people are like, "That doesn't really make any sense." Yeah, it's a little kind of like trust, trust me, right? Because you want to go hard all the time. You're like, you know, and I've I've battled with this uh, with my father for years. He just wants to go as hard as he can every single day, and I'm like, you can't. You can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's that it's sense of, yeah, you want to go hard because you're like, you feel like you're getting something accomplished when you're going hard. I think I think that's the, the mentality yeah. there. And and I know that Matt has the whole thing on the 80-20 rule, but it's interesting right. because I just had a client in the lab today and we did a VO2 max test and I was discussing with them about, you know, 80% of your runs should be really easy. And so I pulled up my training peaks to see kind of what, my ratio was and Mm -hmm. so i have my training split into seven zones and zones one and two i spend 81 percent of my time in zones one and two and i was like hey that's about perfect (laughs) Um, and you know so zones one and two so i just ran a half marathon last weekend and i averaged 513 pace per mile Mm -hmm. but my zone one which i spend 63 percent of the time in is seven minute pace or slower so it's essentially two minutes per mile slower than my race pace. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't run their easy runs that easy. You know, let's say your your half marathon pace is a 730 mile. And for your easy runs, you're running eight minute pace. Like that's not slow enough. Mm-hmm. And and that's the one of the biggest things that I think have has been the takeaways that I've conveyed to clients that come in the lab is that whether it's swimming, biking, running, whatever, you need to do your easy workouts actually easy. Yeah. I know since the last time we talked to you, I think you had mentioned seven, eight minute pace for your, for your long runs. We also talked about cadence mm. and that's definitely been in my head, you know, since this, I don't know what that was. That was I think that was January. Cause we were talking about our birthdays at the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's definitely been in my head this year. And I, I can't say that I've slowed down quite as much as you do, even though I'm still like, I probably should, but I, I'm really big on RPE. So like, I just let, let that take care of itself where it's like, I make sure I feel I'm going easy. And then if I see, see my clock and I'm just like a seven minute pace today, I'm like, it's okay. Todd said it's fine. Like, just, (laughs) just let it be. Don't Uh, blame me. (laughs) <laughs> no 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 i was just saying, like it's it's like the, it's like a valve in my head where just like everybody else i have that you know the inclination where I, I want to go faster but it's like it's not really serving to help me out to do that right so it's like i i typically have a limiter about 645 um and that's like rpe feels easy and i just happen to be going quickly but i've been um leaning more towards the, the seven minute pace this year which, although it's been a little tough for me, because I'm like, am I just getting slow and old, or am I like actually it's... getting smarter? I don't know which. <laughs> which is just happening. slow and old, man. We're just we're just getting slow and old, both of us. <laughs> I I'm trying to like stave that off as much as possible. Um, I, I I can't remember if it was Matt. I feel like it may have been Matt. I don't know. I I talked to somebody and they're like, you know, my fastest running days are behind me and. You know, what What am I going to do now? And it's like, well, you got to figure something out, some kind of challenge. Uh, you made me think about the, 
the your, you mentioned the treadmill goes up to 23% gradient. And um, here on Friday, I'm flying out to Colorado Springs to do the incline. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good luck. Originally, I was going to run the incline because I wanted to get a baseline. But unfortunately, this week, um, Colorado Springs got a dumping of snow. And I've been watching the incline cam, and it is still covered in snow. So I will only be walking up it for this trip. Um, it's a little disappointing. But, you know, there's I'm in Kansas City, like, a steep hill here is like 10% gradient. The incline, you know, averages 43. So I think at some point it pitches up to mid 60s, something like that. So you mentioned the treadmill, and I'm like, I have to get one of those and stick it up on some cinder blocks or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're lucky you even have 10% in uh, in Grand Rapids here. I think the, the, biggest hills that we have are the highway overpasses Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i did hills yesterday morning and that's where i did my hill runs was on a highway overpass (laughs) i think like asking to get hurt speaking of your training though you mentioned you you did a half marathon last weekend and before we got going you mentioned you set a new pr so tell me about that what what happened there why are you doing half marathon because i mean we do triathlon so (laughs) why are you even racing it's off season what are you doing I know, right? Um, it was just kind of an, an, a fun end of the year thing. And my run fitness has been really good this year. I, I haven't really had very good tries. Um, just stupid my, mistakes by myself or things out of my control. And, you know, I, I didn't win any national championships this year or any world championships this year. And it was kind of a disappointing year because last year I literally won every national and world championship that I entered. So, um but like my fitness is there. And so I was like, I haven't been able to show my fitness. And so right. I, uh, I wanted to do it at the end of the year for fun. And, and, um, you know, I was doing it with a friend and so, you know, um, we'd been training together all summer and really just, I wanted to go and see what I could do. And my goal is to run a 110, and, um, and just to see if I could do it. Mm-hmm. And, I went through the first nine miles right on pace at, it was like 519 pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's right at, you know, finishing at 110. Um, and I was still about 40 seconds down from the leader at this point. And, and I had thought that he was going to come back further because last year he won the race with a 115. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there's no way he can hold this pace. He's got to come back and mm-hmm. nine miles into the race and he still hadn't come back to me. And so I was like, well, I guess I got to start running pretty hard now. <laughs> so the last four miles, I averaged five minute pace. Um, and in the course of the race, I set a new half marathon PR. I went 108. I set a 10K PR and I set a 5K PR. My last 5K I ran in 1530, which is a 5K PR for me. Um, and I, I ended up catching the guy with a was it downhill at all? Can I like feel better <laughs> no, about myself? <laughs> no downhills. Um, and I caught him with about a mile to go and, and ended up beating him by about 15 seconds. But I mean, we both had really great races. That was a big PR for him too. So, um, but I think part of the reason that we both ran so fast, I was wearing the Nike next percents and he was wearing the Vaporfly four percents. Mm-hmm. So honestly, like I had no business running a 108 and running a 5k PR in the last 5k of a half marathon, like that doesn't happen, you know? So those shoes, that, was, speaking. <laughs> that was the first time that I worn those shoes in a race and like, it just felt easy. And so, you know, I know there's a lot of talk with, with the shoes and Kipchoge's record record and um, whether yeah, they should be banned record, or yeah. not. Um, but I'm going to keep wearing them until they're banned because if you're not wearing them, honestly, you're missing out. Um, you know, it's, it's a 4% improvement in the economy, but that doesn't, lead to a 4% improvement in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably closer to like a one to 2%. I think the studies have shown, mm-hmm. but it, it just, it makes your stride length so much longer because it, you just get that elastic recoil from that carbon plate where the shoe doesn't bend unless you put a lot of force under it. But then mm-hmm. when you put that force on it, it springs back into place and it just, allows you to cover a lot more ground with each step. Um, And so, you know, your cadence can stay the same, 
but your stride length increases by even if it's a couple of centimeters right. you're going to end up running quite a bit faster right you're getting more energetic return it's not going into the ground it's going back into you exactly and so it is really kind of fits right along with um, for my dissertation at Michigan State, I looked at the performance-related variables that are associated with faster finish times in triathlon. Mm -hmm. I know that's a mouthful, but essentially what I did was I, I looked at Garmin watch data and looked at stride length, cadence, mm -hmm. um, vertical oscillation. I did that for the run. I did it for the bike, and I did it for the swim. Obviously, I didn't look at stride length on the bike or swim, but other right. variables that the watch measures. And stride length was actually the most important variable in determining not just run performance, but it was the most closely associated with overall triathlon performance was the longer your stride length, the faster you're going to go. And the R value. So for those that aren't familiar, um, an R value closer to either one or negative one, that would be a perfect linear relationship. So it'd either be, you know, positive or negative. So the R value for um, stride length was the highest of all of them, and it was like a 0.93, mm -hmm. um, whereas cadence, where everybody thinks this mythical 180 steps per minute, um, you know, we saw that, yes, higher cadences tended to be uh, faster, but the R value was not anywhere near that 0.9 that the stride length was. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, my recommendation for people is not to increase your stride length or stride um, cadence, but to try to increase your stride length. Now, that does not mean to overstride. Right. That's, that's the next want, part I was going to ask. Yeah, you still want your feet to land underneath your body. So you don't mm -hmm. want to be reaching out in front of you. You want your feet landing underneath you, but essentially what you should think about when you're running is it's a it's a a backwards movement so right. you're pushing you're pushing off behind you you're not reaching out in front of you right. so the more that you can push off behind you using your glutes your hamstrings to push off behind you the more ground that you're going to cover and you shouldn't be reaching out in front of you you want your you want your feet to land underneath your body um it reduces the injury risk and what happens when you reach your feet out in front of your body is you're actually breaking yourself. So right. if you've got your legs here and you're reaching out here, you're basically slowing yourself down because your momentum's going this way. And if you are stepping, you're essentially slowing yourself down and then having to regenerate that, that speed all over again. Whereas mm -hmm. if you land underneath your body, you're essentially just falling forward. Um, so having a, a, a big long stride length is important but you don't want to reach for it in the front. You want to reach for it in the back. Right. And anybody watching on YouTube, I actually, if you uh, go on the channel, I actually have a video where, of me running, which I slowed down in slow-mo, and you can kind of see the under body plant and, and all that kind of stuff going on. Um, it makes me think about back in, I think it's episode 15 of the Smart Athlete Podcast with Ben Yoakum. He's a, a coach at coastal carolina university and he studied for his master's thesis he studied um like the run mechanics of like great sprinters like carl lewis and and people like that and he was talking about um not extending your leg too far back behind you because it creates this extra um, essentially overcompensation, which typically ends up with you throwing your leg too far in front of you. When we're talking about stride length, are we talking about a little bit in terms of like airtime, I guess I'll say like with the, when, when the watch measures that, you know, I, I guess I'm having a hard time conceptualizing how the watch would measure, you know, how far back your, um, your your legs going but i can see how it would measure air time since it's measuring vertical oscillation it's basically time distance between the bottom points of the of the vertical oscillation that actually when you touch the ground so i'm trying to figure out what the data is actually saying so the way it actually measures stride length is it can measure cadence because you're just swinging your arm forward right. and back right. like this and also distance like the gps measures right. distance so it calculates stride length based on distance and cadence. So because cadence times 
length equals distance, well, we've got distance and cadence, so we can easily reverse the equation and solve for length. Mm -hmm. So it, it doesn't really have anything to do with that vertical oscillation. And, okay. and vertical oscillation can only be measured if the person is wearing a heart rate monitor, okay. at least with the Garmin watch, because it, it takes into account, I, I don't know exactly how it does it, but with the how, how much vertical oscillation you're getting from that heart rate monitor in relation to the watch, I believe. So um, yeah, the way it, it actually measures stride length is just it, the GPS tracks how far you're going, the cadence is being measured when you're doing your arm swing, mm -hmm. and it, it reverses the equation and solves for stride length. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, and that makes sense, like intuitively. If, if you're covering more ground per step, then you should be going faster. Like that. Exactly. It all kind of makes sense. I would and, just like to see if, if somehow you could get those guys in the lab and like see on video, you know, what are their mechanics? When does the foot actually leave the ground? Because I've spoken to several different people and I, I had a coach actually write a few kind of almost article type paper things on, um, Oh, what is it called? But uh, ground contact time mm -hmm. and like how reduced ground contact time has a correlation with faster speeds. So that's why I'm kind of thinking about, you know, that distance is covered, but is it float time mm -hmm. compared to time touching ground? And then you have this very long push off. That's right. Well, I don't know if you, you can get that data from the just the watch alone. Yeah. And with ground contact time, yep, a lower ground contact time is going to lead to um you know faster running because when you hit the ground you're hitting the ground with more force mm -hmm. which is causing you to spring off the ground more quickly than right. you know if you're just kind of plodding through so right. yep lower ground contact time is going to lead to greater force which is going to lead to greater stride length which is going to lead to faster running um you know one thing i want to mention about the stride length is i'm sure people are thinking well I'm at a disadvantage. I'm I'm five six, so my stride length is going to be right. way shorter than somebody who's six feet tall. Well, yeah. that's not actually true. In uh, so I had I think over 200 participants in the study. We recorded their height. We recorded their stride length, and there was no correlation between height and stride length. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I'm five six, and I had one of the longest stride lengths of anybody any one of the participants, like mm -hmm. my stride length was close to 1.7 meters, um, which would be how far, like five and a half plus six feet, maybe, yeah. um, you know, so I'm five, six and my stride length is that long, but, but, um, but I mean, having watched you, I know your running economy is, is very, very good. Like your vertical oscillation is almost not, it's only, it's only as much as is necessary to get you off the ground. You're like, if you watch your head, your, your run economy, you're so smooth compared to when you watch all the other runners come through, at, you know, at these competitions are at. So, I mean, I can believe that because you have those mechanics in place. I, it's just one of those things where it's like, we can go deep down the rabbit hole and then try to come back out and make this like intuitive leap about, okay, we just need to tweak this one thing person will be like a more biomechanically advantaged runner or whatever yeah and you know that there are like two main ways that you can improve your running economy one is to run more go figure right <laughs> and that's why the professional runners do 100 mile weeks right yeah. it's it's not for the improved like cardiovascular benefits it's to help improve their economy mm -hmm. um the second way you improve your economy is through strength training and the way that it does this is that strength training improves those neural pathways. So um, that neuromuscular firing pattern so that your muscles are firing only the muscle fibers that need to be fired and the ones that are going to um, help you produce that forward movement so that you're not recruiting any extra fibers that's going to require more calories or more oxygen. So um, that strength training will help. So yeah, strength training and running more are, are going to be the two ways that you can really improve your economy. And, and so, you know, I grew up as a, a baseball player. And so I spent a lot of time in the weight room. And so I think that was part of the reason that, um, like you said, I am a little bit more efficient than 
than others. Um, and it's not like I, I don't run more than most. I think the most mileage I've ever done in a week is maybe 55, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, along with that, that strength training background that I have, I think, you know, they, they both kind of work in, in unison. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to run out of time. We're both, we're in the evening here. I don't want to run out of time. I, I do want to get to, cause we have kind of unfinished business from last time when you wrote a, uh, well, uh, passion imbued paper um, <laughs> for for USA triathlon trying to prove your point of um, I think equalizing start times and making making um, the race more fair for the national championship so I want to give you a chance to kind of make your case you know what I guess take us back what happened this was had to have been 2017 2018 18. 18. yep so so what what happened at the race that made you decide I'm going to write a research paper essentially and, and submit it to the U S S governing body of triathlon. Oh, okay, man. You're taking me back here. I thought I was done with that. And I'm like, you know, just block that from my mind and just bring the stress back so long. <laughs> uh, so what happened was the, the race was in Cleveland. It was in Lake Erie. And this is the first time that it, at least since I've been racing for the last five-ish years that it's been in kind of an open body of water. It's mm-hmm. been in Lake Michigan before, but that was in, you know, the cove where it was yeah, protected it was from the there, elements, yeah. or it was in uh, Omaha in Carter Lake where, you know, it's a small lake. It's not really exposed to the elements. So right. in Lake Erie, it's really subject to a lot of uh, environmental changes. Mm-hmm. And so, when it gets windier, the waves really pick up. And so my wave, the 20 to 25 wave, started at 9 o'clock. We were one of the last waves to go. The 20 to 24 wave started at 8 o'clock, so an hour before me. And the 30 to 34 wave started at 7 a.m., so they had the first wave. Mm-hmm. I ended up finishing, like, 7th overall, which was my worst finish since I started doing the national championship in Milwaukee in 2015, where I think I finished eighth overall. And there was a uh, one of the guys who was in the 30 to 34 age group. Um, he beat me by 30 seconds or so. And the year before, when we were in the same age group, I beat him by about four minutes. Mm-hmm. And so what happened in those two hours, so he started at seven, I started at nine. In those two hours, the water went from being perfectly calm to waves cresting two feet above the athletes heads and just much different swim conditions Mm -hmm. and so you know i go from beating this guy by four minutes to losing to him by 30 seconds and and i'm just like how are you gonna do overall awards if the athletes are separated by so much time and because not only do the environmental conditions change like the water conditions change but it also gets a lot hotter. So I'm out there until 11 a.m. where right. he's done by 9 a.m. It gets hotter. It gets windier. The crowd becomes, or the crowd, the course becomes more crowded. Right. And so, you know, I, I wrote a letter to USA Triathlon. I looked at the last 10 years of data from finishers and in the top 10, 25, and 50, and and looked at what age groups represented most of those finishers. And so... In 2018, there was actually like a 250% increase in the number of finishers in the top 10, 25, and 50 from the 30 to 34 age group for the men. Mm-hmm. And that was because they got that first wave and the conditions got so much worse throughout the day. Right. And so um, I think I was the either there were only one or two 25 to 29 athletes who even finished in the top 10 last year and in years previous it's usually like four or five Mm -hmm. and so obviously something happened and i looked at the women's data too and so typically the the women are a little more spread out where for the men it's typically between 20 and 34 that are the top finishers Mm -hmm. and the the top three they have only come from those three age groups in the last 10 years for the women, it's a little more spread out. It's anywhere from like 20 to 
40 or 44. But the same kind of trend held for the women. The, the women who started earlier, they saw about a 200% increase in the number of finishers from the top 10, 25, and 50 compared to previous years. And so I took all this data to USA Triathlon and said, like, if you're going to do overall awards, here are my suggestions. Either have an elite wave where the top athletes from each age group can all go against each other and, you know, compete that way, which mm -hmm. I think would be really cool because then you could actually race an right, overall racing race. together instead uh, of time trial. Right. Um, so I said either have an elite wave, have the top athletes start within half an hour of each other, or at least back to back so that there's not a two hour time gap or don't give out overall awards because it's not fair. And to their credit this year, they actually employed that. So the, at least for the Olympic distance, the 25, 29, 20, 24, and 30 to 34 all for men all started within half an hour of each other. Mm -hmm. So that was actually really cool for me because even though it didn't help me last year, like this year they actually implemented that change and made it more fair for all the athletes competing. Right. And so, you know, I am, I'm like really proud of that because it's, it's not something that I did during the race, but it's objective data that I collected and mm -hmm. showed them and showed that like, this is the best way to do it if we're going to do overall awards. Well, it's always nice to like to actually see that that go to work. You know, I I, I kind of want to give you a hard time and just say like, what goes you through your head and says, there must be something that's legitimately wrong versus I just had a bad day. <laughs> you know, because because you went through a lot of work. It's not just a matter of like, you know, thinking intuitively like ah, you know, it was it was rougher waters and just you know chalking it up to uh, that's just how it goes. It's uh, literally like let's pour over the data from the last decade and figure out like. Am I out of my mind or is there like statistical significance in this year's changes? And so, so I guess I'm going to give you props and especially, you know, did you get a response from them or was it, was it just a matter of they did that and you assumed that you had some kind of effect on that? No, I got a response from them. So to, to their credit, um, Rocky Harris, the CEO, Tim Yount, um, I, I don't know Tim's exact title, but you know what the, the top level yeah, guys, yeah. they, I mean, because that's who I emailed and right. they very responsive said like, you know, this is really good. Like we'll take it to our, our team and we'll look into it. And they kept me updated throughout the entire process. Mm -hmm. And so it's, um, it, it's really great because, you know, these guys are like, he's the CEO of USA triathlon Rocky is. And yet he takes the time to email me regarding, you know, an athlete just complaining because he didn't finish as high as he thought he was going to, right? Um, right. Yeah, so, but you had numbers. It wasn't just, hey, I don't like you. It was, hey, I don't like you, and here's why, and the numbers to show it. Exactly, exactly. And so, actually, I wrote another letter this year because, um, again, my race didn't go as planned. And so, I'm like, oh, here I go complaining again. But I, I got a drafting penalty during mm -hmm. the sprint distance race. I had right. originally won the race and the drafting penalty took me to you know third right and and something needs to change with the way they give out penalties for usa triathlon because i had no idea i got a penalty until after the race and they have somebody riding on the back of a motorbike on a scratch notepad of paper like this right and it's just like you know they wrote down highway you know and my bib number like well, the whole race was on the highway. Yeah. I was in the lead for the entire first half of the bike. I didn't get past until, you know, mile 10. Mm -hmm. And only a couple of guys passed me and they blew right by me and I wasn't right behind them. So right, I like, like you, you shouldn't even be in the, the situation to have a, a, a drafting penalty like be possible. Right. Well, and, and so, you know, I questioned it and I asked them, I was like, well, where exactly did it happen? Like what mile marker? Because then maybe that'll jog my memory and I'll be like, okay, yeah, you know, maybe it did happen, but like somebody to, passed and you didn't pack off fast enough. Yeah, or exactly. Whatever, you know. To my recollection and, and not to toot my own horn, but like, I remember every detail of the race because I do this for all my workouts, all of my races. I go back and I write notes 
because I want to know how I felt during this workout and what happened during the workout. And I do the same thing for races. And so I pay particular attention to what happens and when it happens. And, you know, because they couldn't give me any of that information, they couldn't tell me when it happened or what athlete I was riding behind or anything like that. Like it's my word against the officials. And in my opinion, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, and I know every athlete says that when they get a drafting penalty, right? Right. But, but honestly, like there was at no point when it would have happened or when they said it happened. And so I'm like, it was on the highway, but it wasn't on the overpass because they didn't give out penalties on the overpass. And so that cuts out like a quarter of the race. And so Mm -hmm. I'm just like, where exactly did it happen? Like if they, and so I recommended putting, you know, GoPro on the right. motorbike so that you right. could see or have the official wear a GoPro or, cam or something. Yeah. Or instead of a, a little scratch notepad of, of paper, like get an iPad and you can easily enter the athlete's number. You can enter the color of their kit or bike. You can put a mile marker, a GPS tag, mm-hmm. something, and and it will just lead to more clarification as to where the athlete got the penalty. And in USA Triathlon, athletes are not told when they get a drafting penalty, or any penalty for that matter. Right. The official, the official just rides by, writes numbers down, and then you're notified at the awards ceremony, like hours later. So yeah. here I am thinking, well, yeah, like, you should, like, you're supposed to be able to petition, but that's not the time to petition. Exactly. And so, um, you know, like, let the athlete know, let me know that I got it, that I'm, that I'm drafting. I'll pull over to the side for my two minutes and then continue as opposed to letting me finish thinking I won a national championship. And then afterwards saying, Oh, sorry, you didn't. Right. So, you know, hopefully like last year, they implemented that change in the wave start times. Hopefully something will come of it where, you know, they can make some changes to the way penalties are assessed. Right. And I, I know I've gotten in my head, I've gotten mixed up what, like what the drafting distances is. I, Cause I was doing 70.3 mostly there for the last few years. And I backed back down. And then this last year was just a, a series of chaos. I text you before the national championship. I had a cold that week and had to skip it. Um, but it's like I know for Ironman now it's like six bike lengths is considered drafting, and then you have is it twenty five seconds or fifteen seconds to pass? Do you recall? I'm not sure what it is in Ironman. I but mean, I know for for, for um, USAT yeah. for USA Triathlon, I believe it it's either three bike lengths or I feel uh, like they lengthened it though, like it, to to like. And maybe it's just the Ironman, but I know Ironman in successive years, it was like three bike links. And then the next year it was five bike links. And then the following year it was six bike links with like the similar time frame where it says you have 25 seconds to pass. Right. Well, not that I'm going to pass you, but say we're both out there. I'm trying to pass you. You're going 25 miles an hour. I'm going 25.1. I'm not going to pass you in that time frame unless right. I hammer right. up to like 26 it doesn't even make sense yeah to to try to pass six bike links it's they've done it in an in, to me in an effort to make it easier to say yes or you did or you, no you didn't draft but it's made the the like it's made it more difficult to discern that rather than less difficult because it's so much easier to be within that infraction exactly yeah so it is um, frustrating (laughs) right yeah um yeah hopefully they uh do something something better yeah a picture a video something where it's like okay we have evidence here it is and then you can contest it or not contest it at that point but um so we're we're gonna wrap up here um you're gonna have to go to bed i've gotta eat dinner um I asked you about the recovery food last time. I won't ask you again, even though we're still in season one. Um, so I'll ask you a little bit more cheesy question. You, since you're making all these changes um, to the sport, do you feel like in 10 years this will be enough to get you in the Hall of Fame with Barb? Oh, my gosh. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 
I think uh, I need to win probably about 50 more national championships to get in the Hall of Fame with Barb. Uh, no, but it's awesome. I love that, you know, being coached by her and, um, you know, she's got such a great pedigree and she's just a great person. So, um, but no, I'm not going to be in the Hall of Fame. Come on, man. Get out of here. <laughs> just keep, hey, you know, you just slowly start implementing all these measures and just, you know, improving the sport. And, you know, if you've got, if you got the CEO, uh, you know, on on like a quick dial, or you've got him, you know, in your phone book, then you know, just give him a nudge down the line. Like, <laughs> look, look how far we've come in the last decade, huh? Yeah, it was all because of me, only me. <laughs> Singular mind, you know, you got to put it to you somehow. That's right. <laughs> All right, Tom. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. I will let you go. And of course, I have to go too. So I'm sure we'll see you again as you collect more data at the lab and uh, we have more to report on. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate it.